Welcome to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. In this series, we will discuss market and legal insight and explore the latest trends and challenges facing businesses today and how they must evolve to meet them, both in the short and long term. In each episode, you get the latest views and insights from DLA Piper's leading lawyers. Hello, I'm Patrick Rappo, your podcast host today. I'm partner at DLA Piper London and co-chair of our Global Compliance and Investigations Group. I'm joined by my colleagues David Cook, legal director in our Manchester office specialising in data protection, and Justine Phillips, a partner in our San Diego office who practices in relation to cyber. Uh, in this episode, we'll discuss data privacy and cyber security laws, what happens when things go wrong, and how you can remedy the issue to reduce your company's exposure. So, David, looking at you, first of all, why is cybersecurity an issue? Give us the helicopter view. Hopefully, this is a simple one for you, Patrick. We're in a connected world. We're all connected. Businesses are connected with each other. Businesses are connected with themselves and different parts of the business infrastructure and communities. And there's just a huge amount of data going all over the world all of the time. In fact, while you've got me on the topic, here's a good stat for you. It's 90% of data that's been created since the dawn of civilization was created in the last two years. So that data and what it means in terms of privacy and data protection, IP, commercial data, reputation, thoughts and memories, all of these different things, they've got value. It's not only that, you know, how we get paid occurs through connected devices. When I use my car, the navigation system helps me get to where I want to be, how we communicate. I suppose you could say data is everywhere and everything. And that's why cybersecurity is an issue. Because of the importance of the data and the potential for the significant impact from its loss or misuse, or if things go wrong, there's necessarily laws that define the obligations as to how organizations use that data. And you know, an interesting part, data flows without borders. There's no single unitary internet law. And so the law changes from country to country in quite subtle and complicated ways. And that's why it's an interesting area. That's why it's important. We all love a random statistic like 90% of data in the last couple of years. It's very good. Uh, but Justine, over to you. And speaking from the kind of US side, uh, is this where cybersecurity comes in? Thanks, Patrick. You know, we are so interdependent, as David mentions, on one another, partly because we've built these systems to be interdependent and connect. We love when our devices connect with each other. So cybersecurity is a symphony of actions, processes, and technologies that protect and safeguard data to keep it private. We have to have these, these businesses that are creating these interdependent, interconnected systems and devices must also have an incumbent obligation to safeguard the data. So the motivation to secure data can be quite different depending on the company. Businesses can be motivated to keep their trade secrets secure. Certainly most businesses do that. Individuals might also be motivated to keep their identity and medical information private. So it really depends on who we're talking about. Cybersecurity is a primary issue also, because global laws and regulations are beginning to mandate that businesses collect and store personal information and that legal obligation to secure that data has big sanctions and big consequences if they don't get it right. As we'll get into, there can be severe consequences and we're going to talk a little bit about what that looks like on the United States side. 
Well, our listeners are joining from all over the globe. So, David, again, looking at you first in relation to this, can you outline some of the key differences that you're seeing in the, um, you know, the different laws across the EU, UK, US and the rest of the world? Yeah, so there's a hodgepodge of laws across the world. Data that relates to a living individual is referred to as personal data. It's a definition of the General Data Protection Regulation or the GDPR. And the cybersecurity elements of the GDPR is that an organization dealing with personal data, so a controller or a processor, must have appropriate security in place to protect it. Well, that's a basic definition. What does it mean, appropriate security? And there's all sorts of benchmarks and standards, and it's a very interesting area to get into. But that definition of appropriate security, very basic, but it's mirrored across numerous laws across the world with respect to personal data. So certainly across EMEA and APAC, this definition of appropriate security, taking into account the risk the individuals or the misuse of the data, is the definition that's used. And uh, and how about the US, Justine? What's the um, is there any differences or any significant differences there? The law in the US is quite different. Most cyber laws developed in the US impose fairly strict obligations, quite a binary world that we live in, whether or not certain data elements are accessed by an unauthorized user will trigger breach obligations. There is not a sliding scale standard as to whether or not there is a reasonableness if that data has been accessed by an unauthorized user and it is of a particular data element, then it will trigger breach obligations. There are certain exceptions and safe harbors that apply, but it is a analysis that varies across all 50 states. In 2003, California was the first state, and that's my home state where I was born and raised, in the United States to enact a breach notification law. Uh, today, as I present on this podcast, all 50 states have adopted slightly different versions, which makes it a patchwork of different laws. So the law of the state where the individual resides is the one that applies if their data is compromised. So it doesn't really matter if that business does not have an operation in those states. If they're collecting data on individuals in that state, they have to comply with the consumer protection laws of that state. So in addition to giving notice to individuals uh, about sensitive data, like their passport, medical information, health insurance information, uh, some states will also require notice to the attorney general. State attorney generals are the ones that are often they have web collection forms. Certain states, and you can look it up online, just type in uh, California Attorney General Breach website, and you will be taken to a public website that allows you to see all of the businesses who have been compromised and a sample of their notice. So this is a public type of disclosure that is out there. Uh, it is looked at by regulators. It's also looked at by plaintiff's attorneys. And one breach in the EU that includes data on residents in all 50 states in the US and beyond can be quite difficult to comply with, which is one of the reasons it's fun to work with David and our team in the EU on these more global impact. So more recently, interestingly, we have states and regulators at the highest level in the country imposing reasonable security requirements on business. This is a very vague and general type of requirement and has not been litigated too much yet, although we exceed on the horizon. So there is a duty in California, for example, to implement and maintain reasonable security procedures and practices. So for a business, what that means is developing reasonable types of policies 
training and educating their workforce on how to safeguard the data. Failure to comply can result in statutory damages that range from 100 to 750 per person plus penalties and fines. This is, can be a helpful metric to evaluate the amount of money you should invest in your cybersecurity program because you're now able to see the value of the amount of data that is being held if it is compromised. So again, if the data is compromised, you have this risk exposure of statutory fines and damages. Now, in other states like Massachusetts and New York, and now we've got some guidance from the SEC as well, that impose very prescriptive requirements on how to implement technical and administrative safeguards. So whereas California has this sort of vague, reasonable security standard and requirement, other states are starting to develop very technical administrative safeguards and laws that explain specifically what would be the expectation there. A couple of days ago, in New York, we've got regulations that also require certain board members to have cyber expertise. The SEC also has something similar, uh, and those laws and rules are being promulgated currently. States are also introducing laws that require specific security for wearable devices and connected devices. I mean, the bottom line, guys, is the laws are emerging at a record pace, not only in the U.S. or the EU, but also in far-reaching jurisdictions like India, China, and Australia. Crikey, so that's um, that's quite an expanding landscape. So, David, can you give us some comfort about the UK position? Are we a bastion of good sense and good taste and have minimal laws in place here that, uh, that are really easy to understand? <laughs> well, that's an interesting one. So cybersecurity laws apply to all different sorts of data. If we take, for example, Financial services organizations, they're often regulated by the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority. They're expected to ensure operational resilience that goes beyond the requirements of the GDPR. Critical national infrastructure have to ensure specific system controls according to the sector regulators. Computer Misuse Act 1990 criminalizes the unauthorized access to computer material. So there's all sorts of different ones, you know, scattering of international cybersecurity laws that are industry focused. So Payment Card Industry Data Security Standards, or PCI DSS, that's dealt with harshly. If there's a breach there, then often the organization's then unable to deal with Visa or MasterCard at all. The fines can be issued. So they're just the laws that define the level of cybersecurity in place. If a breach happens, so if there's cybersecurity incident, personal data breach, whatever that looks like, then there's all sorts of different laws that then come into play. If there's access to the material, if there's just the insecurity, if data is transferred out of the network, additional requirements apply. There's no easy answer to this, Patrick. And it'd be nice to say, you know, one ring to rule them all. We're not quite in that territory. And there's, there's, there's a patchwork. <laughs> and Justine, just in terms of the US position in relation to mandatory breach reporting, can you let us know what the, um, the sort of upshot is there? Well, I'm not sure there is so much upshot. There are certainly strict requirements and the mandatory breach notification law started in California again in 2003. These are issues that really put a burden on organizations to focus on not only securing their data proactively, but reactively in the wake of a breach, you now have various prescriptive obligations to give these notices. And what that looks like is you have to mine the data. So you have to look at the data itself. You have to identify the individuals, 
the data elements that were compromised. You have to look at the state where the consumer resides, and then you have to prepare the notice. So you're working across multiple vendors. You're using vendors to mail the notice. Multiple states do require identity theft protection services. So you have to get that set up. So it is a timely and consuming of not only uh, time, but resources and money. So, you know, we are now in the U.S. is a little bit, maybe 15 years further along than it was in the EU. We have a more mature patchwork and we have different types of obligations. So where we have notice to individuals, what we see on the EU side is notice to regulators where we have plaintiffs class action litigation that follows breach notices in the EU. You may have regulatory scrutiny. So this is an area where we look at our world quite binary. There's not an analysis that's typically done where we say, does this cause a high risk to the data subjects? Rather, it's was the data uh, subject to unauthorized access by somebody that wasn't supposed to be seeing the data? And if so, notice has to be given. So cybersecurity, you know, I like to think of it in these really two ways is it is proactive and it's reactive. So on the proactive side, this is mapping the data, identifying what data elements are there, encrypting it, safeguarding it, putting in policies, procedures. On the reactive side, making sure you have a real good plan. And that plan should walk through, when do you contact law enforcement? When do you contact leadership? When do you escalate to retain third parties? Uh, so there's quite a bit that can be done before any breach ever occurs. So, David, you and I have sort of dealt with a number of these cases together where we're, uh, you know, investigating hacks which have led to frauds and so on and so forth. But just from a cyber perspective, can you tell us really what to do in that golden hour when you first find out that things have gone wrong? So when a cybersecurity incident occurs, it, it becomes very stressful very quickly. And we often see lots of various senior people running around with their heads in their hands, which is something that some of these senior people are not used to, not used to being out of control. One of the main reasons for that is that most organizations have just not thought about how they would respond to a cybersecurity incident. And if they do have a plan, they've often never tested it. So if it goes wrong for some quite simple reasons and some quite complicated reasons, they don't really know what they're going to do and how they're going to respond to it and whether the measures that they should have in place are in place. So for example, how does an organization define what is a high risk, a low risk, a medium risk incident to them? Is it documented for people to follow in an incident? Who signs off on that assessment as to whether to tell the data protection regulator? Who drafts the notification? Who signs off on the notification? Who signs off on an assessment as to whether to tell individuals? Who drafts that notification? Who signs off on that notification? If you're going to use crisis management or PR firms, who is instructed there? Who agrees the fees? Who signs off on that? Cyber forensics, legal. There's a massive list of different people involved in, in a response. And, and, and the, the organization has to have thought about who they would instruct when and how they deal with that breach in real terms. And what you've got then often in these situations is that an organization just starts to have a scattergun approach and, you know, the IT people instruct an IT forensic investigator, the, the media team or the PR or the internal team who deals with comms instruct a, a communications team, lawyers instruct lawyers, and, and you end up with a patchwork of people who don't really know what everybody else is doing. And that leads to imperfect and rushed results. So 
what we say is that organisations should think about this sort of stuff up front because it doesn't happen at 9am on a Monday morning when everybody's in the office. It happens at 6pm on a bank holiday or it happens on Christmas Eve or just before everybody goes off the New Year's break and there's no time to think about this. So under the GDPR, we talk about 72 hours within which to respond, which is what the regulation says, the data protection regulation. Now, 72 hours, they're not business hours, and they don't stop while you think about how you're going to respond to the incident. They start when the organizations are aware of it having gone wrong. So there are issues all over the place. We see things going wrong, and, and actually it's often around the management of the breach rather than the legal issues themselves. And that is a constant point of failure that we see with cybersecurity response. So, uh, again, looking at this, uh, the company's been hacked. It's the victim, but you know, it appears to be in the firing line of the, uh, of the regulators to do all of this work at that time. Is that, is that the position, Justine? In the United States, when a company is attacked, and sometimes these attackers are very sophisticated, nation states adversaries, very sophisticated crime rings. But regulators and plaintiff's attorneys don't always see the victim company as a victim. There are certain things that are within a business's control. So I want to break this down a little bit, and we'll call it left of boom and right of boom. The boom obviously being the breach. So left of boom This is everything that a business can do that is leading up to a breach. These are those people, process, technologies, those technical and administrative safeguards. And that's all the proactive left of boom. Now there's right of boom. And this is everything that a business does after it is attacked in response to it. And that is quite reactive. And right of boom is a lot of what David just talked about, all of these good systems that you have in place, a good incident response policy, a really good checklist, your vendors that have already been retained. So the reality is businesses are going to be judged on both what they've done left and right of boom, whether or not they had appropriately identified and safeguarded the data, whether they had the right insurance or vendors in place, whether or not they had tested their incident response policies, whether the board had adequate oversight, whether there were resources, somebody that was in charge of cyber. So these are all things, the good news is these are all things within a business's control. So if you're being judged on whether or not you properly investigated, you can actually test your policies, develop your policies, work with partners that you trust, have them understand your environment, make sure the MSA and the SOW is in place. And the U.S. side will talk a smidge about the privilege issue with that, but at least you can see it. So you're not trying to negotiate a contract after a breach has occurred. That wastes valuable time. So one of the things that I'll leave you with on right of boom and left of boom is to really clearly understand who's going to be taking the action, what's their role and responsibility, and on the proactive side and the reactive side, really breaking down what can be done. And if you're going to be judged on it, you'd be proud of what you've done, the steps that you've taken leading up to the event. Okay, well, that's uh, super helpful. Thank you both. But um, okay, so if this happens, what does the company need to consider, David? And what uh, action might the regulators take? You know, what are we looking at here? I think those points that Justine's raised very important. And the ones I've not thought of in that context before, I've not heard of this reference to left or right of boom. But 
thinking about how an organization would deal with those points up front is a good idea. And I'll tell you the, the real thing that we're finding from the incidents we're dealing with. And it's this, cybersecurity and dealing with a breach incident, the areas that lawyers are involved in, that's a legal question, needs a legal answer and involves a legal team. But often cybersecurity is something that's within the, the remit of the IT team or the information security function of the business. And it can fall between a gap. When a cybersecurity incident happens, is it reputational issue, it's a commercial issue, resilience issue, all of those things, but it's also a legal issue. And the regulator, so we talk about the ICO for a second, can issue eye-watering penalties. We hear a lot about 4% of annual global turnover, which is the top-level figure. But, you know, these are massive penalties. And when it goes wrong, organizations are rightfully very concerned about this. We're also seeing, though, a continued increase in litigation in this area from contractual parties and from impacted individuals. And the interesting part, I hesitate to use that word, but the, the real issue organizations constantly now thinking about is if there's a large enough number of impacted individuals and if they're unhappy enough or enough of them are unhappy enough that can trip over into class action risk so we talk about the ico penalty four percent of annual global turnover that could actually be dwarfed by the onward litigation that happens as a result so it's those things that the compliance team and the legal team would be expected to look after and it'd be on their shoulders if it goes wrong and with that in mind we say a compliance team or a legal team should be looking at these issues thinking about the incident response plan thinking about how they'll deal with an incident if it actually happened now this is not an it issue in the response so it shouldn't be an it issue in the preparation should organizations think about whether they've got a response plan in place? Of course, of course they should, but often they don't. And again, Patrick, I know you like statistics. We pay attention to them as an organization and we have to. And if I was to mention a DLA Piper survey, eyebrows would be raised. It may be seen as biased. UK government undertakes a survey every year of businesses. And the vast majority of businesses, I think it's one in three, consider cybersecurity to be in the top five boardroom level issues, but only one in three organizations, only 33% have got a plan as to, as to what they're going to do. So, you know, let, let's think about that for a second. Then most organizations think this is boardroom level issue. The vast majority of organizations haven't got a plan of what they're going to do if it goes wrong. So there's a quick fix, get a plan in place. One second suggestion, test that plan. Now, look, we offer that service. Consultants offer that service. IT people offer that service organizations can test the plans themselves. Look, we do it better than all of those. Of course, come to DLA. That's the message. But the point is, Patrick, sit down as a team, think about it. Would it work for distributed denial of service attacks? Would it work for ransomware? Would it work if the, if the executive team were all out of the country on holiday? Would it work in these different scenarios? And, and, and thinking about that, and as a follow-on from that, is tweak the plan. You know, if you do a test, tweak the plan if you find things that have gone wrong. But on top of that, you know, sort out things that won't work in future. If you suddenly decide you're going to export all of your infrastructure to the cloud, evolve the plan to work with that. If you're going to open a new territory, think about the laws that apply there, evolve the plan to work with that. One of the things with cybersecurity, along with most compliance tasks, is, you know, changes over time, keep working on it, keep evolving it, keep it up to date. But it's the same with cybersecurity. So, you know, go back a second then. One, get a plan in place. Two, test the plan. Three, evolve the plan. All this stuff sounds like it's, you know, very basic and very easy. But those government statistics show that most organizations haven't done any of that stuff. 
True, very true, David. And Justine, any sort of final thoughts from you to build on top of what David's just said? Well, David's advice is spot on. The importance of building, testing and tweaking the plan, you know, the byproduct of that is building trust across the stakeholders. So your technical folks, your legal folks, communications, executive team, building the relationship is incredibly important. The other thing you're building is a solid checklist. You know, I like to think about airline carriers. And when you fly an airplane, the pilot uses a checklist, even though they may have done it hundreds of times. Now, I've investigated hundreds of breaches for different businesses. I still use a checklist to make sure we're not missing anything. So a business that doesn't do this day in and day out should develop a policy and a checklist that helps them with their playbook. So this is somewhat of a run book. Now, a policy can be somewhat of a formal document. A playbook evolves living, breathing document. And uh, it's really important at the center of crisis management to have this small group of decision makers that understand the organizational controls. They understand their checklist. This isn't the first time they're ever seeing it. So in the first 72 hours, this primary issue is to make sure, as David mentioned, everybody wants to help, that they understand their role. What I'm hyper-focused on in the first six hours, 12 hours until they're out is whether or not the bad guys or gals are still in the network or systems. Having that is a high priority. And while the legal investigation is imperative and important, I promise you the technical people and the operations and the CEO and the board is going to care about whether there's ongoing risk to the enterprise. So getting bad guys out is a primary concern. The second concern is making sure that the business can restore and carry on as normal. We call this business continuity. So restoring, making sure you stop the bleeding, then making sure you have the ability to continue on with business operations. The focus for communications teams are ensuring the right message is sent to the right audience and to manage that reputational risk. So the communications folks will have a different perspective. Legal is going to be focused on preserving evidence, making sure that the privileged investigation, the identity of the data impacted, the right vendors have been put in place. And really, if we're talking about that symphony of actions, your outside legal counsel, they'll be your orchestrator. They'll be the ones that are uh, running the investigation and making sure the various component pieces are running and functioning appropriately. So coordinated responses, building that trust, building those communications, all leads to a swift resolution and getting the business back to normal. Fantastic. Well, look, uh, thank you both. That is incredibly eye-opening and in many cases eye-watering. And I think the main takeaways really for the audience is that planning, you know, effectively having a plan in place and making it sure it works. Uh, and certainly I can attest to working together with David and others within the data teams to make sure that we're working on that IT issue. We're working on the media response. We're working on the legal investigation and we're working on getting reporting out there. Uh, and it's important that all of these systems are tested and are working properly. So thank you very much for your assistance with that, both you, David, and you, Justine, for joining us.
Okay, so there you have it. The most important things to know regarding data privacy and cybersecurity breach wrapped up in uh, just about 25 minutes. Of course, if you've got any specific data or cyber issues, please get in touch via the link in the show notes. And thank you very much for listening. We look forward to welcoming you to our next podcast in the future. Thanks a lot. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to the DLA Piper Global Compliance and Investigations podcast. Subscribe now through your usual podcast provider so you don't miss an episode. Thank you, and we look forward to you joining us in the future.